I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mirror Framework, M-E-E-R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Have a brief edition of the show today for you with James W. Carden, a former advisor to the State Department. He's going to be discussing with us the Ukraine crisis, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And I really just want to get straight to the episode. I have been working uh, diligently to try and figure out how to cover these developments. This may be one of a number of interviews you'll be hearing about the current situation. So without further ado, my conversation with James W. Carden. But first, a word from our sponsor. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Use, former advisor to the U.S. State Department, a former advisor to the U.S. State Department, James W. Carden. How are you doing today? Um, I'm, all, I'm all right. Uh, how about yourself? Pretty good, uh, given 
all the things that are happening right now, I, things could be better. But uh, you have an article out, uh, Putin's path to war in three speeches. Uh, the time between 2007 and 2022 was a period of missed opportunities for the West. And that's at uh, the Spectator website. Uh, if we could, maybe you could give your background on uh, how you are interested in Russia and uh, the current crisis, how you came to be uh, sort of a, a go-to person on some of this stuff. Uh, sure. I guess it begins um, a little over uh, a decade ago. Um, I was a, uh, I, I received a graduate degree down here in, in Washington, and then I was part of a um, I did a postgraduate semester at in Moscow, and um, I studied at uh, the school where they basically train their diplomats. Um, and then I came back and worked um, at the State Department as a fellow for about a year and a half. And um, after that, began writing, and I somehow fell into the um, orbit of the. Uh, late great Russianist Stephen F. Cohen, who became a friend and mentor, and uh, through through Steve, of course, I met his wife Katrina and wrote for the Nation for a number of years. Uh, so that's sort of the um, uh, the, um, the the story, I guess. Yeah, and uh, and Steve, of course, founded the American uh, Committee for U.S. Russia Accord. Yeah, that's right. And that's the successor organization to the Committee on East-West Accord, which was very active pro-detente organization during the, during the first Cold War. Um, and, 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 and so that work um, has been made immeasurably more difficult um, thanks to the events of the last couple of weeks. Um, and and I just want to note real quick, I, I believe Ecora has come out pretty forcefully uh, saying that, you know, they condemn this invasion of, of Ukraine. Unreservedly, yes. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how, how should we view what has happened in the past few days with this invasion? Uh, and, and how should we talk about it? Because I think there are issues with NATO that are now becoming much harder uh, to talk about. A lot of people will accuse you of, uh, you know, spouting the Kremlin line if you criticize NATO at this moment. At, at the same time, I, I am not into this thing of saying, oh, this is all justified by Putin. And I don't think there's many serious people doing that. Uh, but there are some elements that uh, are trying to push that line. So how do we thread the needle? Well, I, I guess the first thing would be to think about whether how you would react if 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 our own country was acting in this this manner, and we our own country has acted uh, in this manner before. So, if you are anti-war, if you're pro-peace, if you um, if you believe in the validity of such concepts as just war theory, uh, you cannot support this war under any circumstances. That's not to say that um, the Russian leadership doesn't have its reasons. 
um, for doing what it's doing. Um, however, um, there, there was no reason to do what they're doing um, at this time. They were not attacked. Um, so it's not, it's, 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 a, it's not valid. NATO and, you know, the NATO argument, hey, you know, I, I've been, I and a number of my colleagues have been saying for years that NATO expansion is, 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 a, is wrong and something like this would probably happen if we didn't come to some sort of um, agreement over new, Ukrainian neutrality. <clears throat> All that's fine. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, Ukraine uh, did not and hasn't become a part of NATO. Uh, so there, there was no cause for, for, for war. Um, and so at least, you know, there's no, you can't defend this. You, you, you simply can't. Even knowing the long history of, 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 of provocations and of uh, torn up treaties and uh, our own rather, um, our own very questionable history on the international stage, particularly in the last 20 years. Um, but uh, so you, you, this is an indefensible uh, thing that the, uh, that, that, that Vladimir Putin has done. And, and um, I, I just yeah, don't- There's yeah. not much more to say other than that in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I also wanted to address this real quick and, and get your thoughts on it. I, I don't know if it's outside of your area of expertise, but um, I, I think another line I've heard lately is either there are no Nazis in Ukraine, uh, that, you know, ignore the Azov Battalion, then I've heard on the other side of that, people that are trying to say that, you know, all of Ukrainians are just these crazed neo-Nazis. And I think both uh, pictures being painted there are very wrong. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, that is a, both pictures are, are, are incorrect. Um, I, and I think that in a way, um, Putin... Um, sort of has the same rhetorical, um, what would you say? He is similar in some ways to the previous president of the United States in that he overstates his case by a ridiculous amount. And when he does that, he undermines, he undermines himself. So um, yes, uh, there are neo-Nazi battalions operating in Ukraine. Uh, the, most famous, the most famous one is called the Azov Battalion. Um, they are headquartered in Mariupol. And I believe that we are going to see a horrendous uh, battle for that city uh, in the very near future. Um, but, and you know, Western Ukraine doesn't have a great history um, with, you know, they weren't exactly, you know, they weren't on the right side in the big war in the middle of the 20th century. But that is this be like, this is the part of Ukraine where people like Stepan Bandera came out of? Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, that part of it is correct. Um, but to paint the whole of Western Ukraine as a, as a you know as a hot house of um, Nazism is not correct at all. 
Um, so, um, you're right. So base, you know, there's an element of truth to it, but, um, the idea that the Russians are going to, as Putin announced, he said he was going to pursue a program of denazification for the entire country is, uh, it seems to me window dressing for a very, very wide war. Um, and so that should strike us all as, uh, is very troubling. So in regards to this question of NATO expansion, and that's a lot of what your uh, article in The Spectator uh, discusses, maybe for people that are new to this issue, uh, that are being told uh, NATO has nothing to do with this at all, uh, you know, Putin is just lying. And I, I mean, it could be, I guess you could argue that maybe uh, Putin has, uh, some people have said he has unwarranted paranoia about NATO. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. I, that's one argument people have made. But what is the story, I guess, of why Russia would be concerned about NATO expansion and the expansion since the fall of the Berlin Wall? Part of it has to do with the feeling that the prom promises made at the end of the Cold War uh, have, have, been, have been broken repeatedly. Um, there's a feeling that in, in Moscow that um, during the negotiations to end the Cold War that our side promised that we wouldn't expand um, to the east. Uh, we did repeatedly. Uh, the Russians have for 30 years been jumping up and down, screaming and yelling uh, that NATO expansion is unacceptable. Uh, we didn't listen. We chose not to listen. We chose not to take um, them seriously. And what we're, we're paying, the, well, the Ukrainians are paying the price uh, for, for, that, for that now, for that failure. Um, to listen and take their security concerns seriously. Again, but I guess for for my listeners, what would the if they don't understand what the concern of Russia is, what is the exact security concern? Uh, well, let's put ourselves in their position. That's the easiest way, I think, to understand it. Um, so let's say hypothetically that the Russians and or the Chinese decided that they were going to build military bases in Ontario or in Mexico. What do we think the response of any U.S. administration would be? We would go to war over that. Uh, we nearly went to war in 1962 over Russian missiles uh, being placed in Cuba. Uh, we have for centuries espoused the, the Monroe Doctrine, right? So we take very seriously, even though we, even though our top diplomats and politicians say that there is no such thing, there are in the 21st century, there's no such thing anymore as a sphere of influence. Uh, that's baloney. Uh, we very much believe in an American sphere of influence, um, as do the Russians. So if we walk a mile in their shoes for, for a bit, we will come to understand that 
placing the world's most powerful military alliance right up to their border um, is something that they see as provocative. And they aren't in, and they aren't wrong. They've been saying for 30 years consistently, even before Vladimir Putin was on the scene, that they find it, that to be that they find that to be unacceptable. I wish we had listened. So I want to address this real quick because uh, I feel like there are people that have have sort of said this in response to uh, Putin's argument about NATO. People have said, well, NATO has enough problems maintaining its own unity, much less engaging in aggressive behavior. So, you know, why does he believe this? This seems uh, farcical is what people have said. But I'm not sure that that necessarily means that he's lying about his concerns about NATO, like even if you uh, assume that, you know, NATO has its own problems, it would not uh, pose a threat to Putin at this moment. Uh, You know, paranoia is a strange thing. And I I think there is a lot of paranoia at work right now. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, The the other thing people need to understand, though, like joining NATO isn't simply just signing on the dotted line and then you're in, right? So there are all these other issues, of particularly um, those of interoperability, right? So you, it, it, NATO basically means an enormous upgrade in your capabilities, right? Uh, it means that you're going to be receiving American arms, American funding, um, and it basically puts you under the American defense umbrella and gives you a direct pipeline to the American defense establishment, right? So no, NATO, unless it were, unless it were suicidal, was, has not ever planned to invade Russia. That would mean the end for all of us. But it does mean a significant upgrade in capabilities to these other militaries right on their border. And they have a lot of border to worry about. So not just in the West, right? So if we look at, you know, their border, um, they border the the Central Asia, um, very close to the Middle East. And then of course, they have an enormous border with China. They have significant security concerns. Uh, They live in a very tough neighborhood. We, on the other hand, don't understand that because we don't, right? We're bordered by two oceans, Canada and Mexico. That's not so bad. So, you know, the, the, their defense and military establishment, they, they tend to be paranoid because they have a lot to be paranoid about. Again, this is not a defense at all uh, for what they're doing now. Well, it, it seems like paranoia has reigned supreme on a lot of different sides of this. You know, I've I've heard people say when when talking about things like what we're saying, uh, well, you know, Ukraine could serve as a gateway for uh, Russia to menace our allies in Europe, and uh, you know, it seems like everyone almost has a, a very paranoid you know, inevitably escalatory view of all this. Yeah. Maybe for good reason. Um, right. You know, the, what we've seen is really 
unprecedented. It's shocking. Yeah. Shocking to see um, Kiev under under siege as it is. It's it's surrounded now. And I get the impression you a lot of people thought he would do some type of invasion, but not go for Kiev. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I totally expected that there would be some sort of move to totally detach the small uh, people's republics in the in the east. So the people's republics of uh, Luhansk and, and Donetsk. Um, yeah, no, this is this is rather, rather shocking. What I am hoping is that what we're seeing is something of a repeat, but on a grander scale to what happened in 2008. So you'll recall that in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. Georgia's a lot smaller over the same, basically the same issue uh, of NATO expansion, except that the Georgians in that case actually gave the Russians a reason. Uh, the, the Georgians did attack. Uh, they did fire upon uh, Russian peacekeepers in the breakaway region of South Ossetia. So, um, and they rolled all the way in to the middle of the country. And then they went back, right? So um, one sort of hopes that this is the same, the same idea uh, to show that they're very, very, very serious about uh, uh, NATO expansion, um, and um, uh, they'll probably the breakaway republics will never come back um, to Ukraine. Um, but hopefully, in a matter of days, they will they will withdraw. Having made their point, they will withdraw. That was sort of what happened in two thousand and eight. I think that's the best. I think that's the best we could hope for now. But is um, but it the most any, likely outcome? I don't know. You'd, That's you'd, fair. Yeah. You'd be crazy to, to predict uh, anything with any certainty right now. Real quick, if we could, those three speeches, uh, I wanted to cover those briefly and what they addressed. Uh, the first one I think you mentioned in the article is uh, Putin's 2007 address uh, to the Munich uh, Security Conference. Could you discuss that a little bit and then the other two uh, speeches that you address in the article? Yeah, so the Munich Security Conference speech of 2007 is seen by a lot of Russia experts um, as a kind of point of no return. Um, it was Putin's sort of declaration of independence from the so-called international rules-based order. Um, I think it was a expression of frustration, of anger with the American war uh, in, in Iraq. Um, and Putin really was at that time acting as a responsible world leader. And he was echoing and um, advocating for the uh, UN-based UN world order, which is a different thing from our international rules-based order. Um, and um, a number of years later, the second speech that I wrote about took place in New York at the United Nations, and it was in 2015. And it was, again, um, I think rather reasonable. Um, 
It was an expression of outrage at the American regime change operations that had happened and that were currently being undertaken by the United States in the Middle East. And again, in these two speeches, I, I feel like they were actually rather straightforward and their sentiments were in a way laudable because uh, they were echoing um, a kind of vision that we once um, that we once said was our you know was ours it was the, the vision of you know uh, the the UN right and not and multilateralism and um, against um, you know illegal invasions and regime change regime change operations um, but in the years between 2007 2015 and now it's the the speech that Putin made announcing that you know they were commencing hostilities that they were recognizing the breakaway republics it seems to me he went completely off the rails and um, began to express these things that we spoke about earlier with regard to wholesale denazification of, you know, of Ukraine and the like so he he went from being a in my view, a rather reasonable international actor. He's always sort of been considered like the rational chess player uh, when yeah. it comes to international relations. I think, it, I don't know. This is all just my own speculation and it's un, pretty uninformed, but I can't help but wonder if he has finally been captured by his own hardliners. So in the United States and in the United States mainstream media, Putin has always been treated as kind of a, um, a one-man show, right? It's his word. He's the iron-fisted ruler of Russia. And that's not really the case. I mean, he has to balance a number of competing um, interest groups. And so, the, you know, they have politics like we have politics. Um, and I think that what finally happened was that the most extreme hardliners ha ha carried the day uh, in this case. So um, I, I also wonder, it being 2022, he's up for um, re-election uh, in two years, in 2024. Does this have anything to, does this relate somehow? Does this relate somehow to a decision that he's made uh, that he he won't he won't return? Oh, you know, and he's going to take care of this unfinished business now? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's useless to speculate. Um, the best that we can hope for is some sort of um, a negotiated end to this. Uh, and let's hope that um, that happens, um, and it happens soon. It, it sounds like from where you're coming from, maybe everyone should back off um, on the speculation and just, you know, hope that this can be resolved as as quickly as possible. Because uh, this is a really dangerous uh, scenario, and I think, as I told someone uh, recently, I said any false move by any of the 
you know, major players in this uh, could have really disastrous consequences. And uh, that's the last thing I actually wanted to ask you about. What are the warnings you think should be heated right now by, you know, all the major players involved? And what, what I guess, what lesson uh, should we be learning from all this? Right. I, I think that, I guess, you know, to, today there were reports that uh, French President Macron has spoken to uh, to Putin. I think that, you know, we need to stop pouring uh, gas on this this fire. Um, and any so a negotiated end is something that we need to hope for and need to keep working towards. Um, I don't really see it as helpful um, to be sending um, sending arms. It might feel good and it might you can't help but wish the people defending their country uh, well. but uh, the fact of the matter is is that, the military experts that I've spoken to and have have, have read is that the Russians are not have, have they have not done their worst yet and they're holding back. Um, and so that that's one thing I'm worried about. A lot of people I'm seeing now saying, "Oh, you know, uh, look, uh, you look at this picture of Zelensky meeting with his defense minister, and he's smiling and." And this picture with Putin and his, they're not smiling. Obviously, uh, Ukraine is is doing great right now. I don't think this is over yet unless there's a, a peace reached. And I, I think Russia could do much more intense things in this. A lot more. Yeah. A lot more. And, I and think I, that, I'm really concerned about that. Yeah. Uh, I, we all, you know, we all should be. It's a um, no. I think that they this this idea that the progress that they've made has been slow and they've been shocked by the ferocity or the resistance. Um, that's a narrative that's been crafted from the very start, particularly on CNN, uh, which um, I've done something that I haven't done in six years. Uh, I've turned on CNN and MSNBC. So thanks, thanks, Putin, for that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, no, it's not. It's not the case. They they they've made tremendous gains, um, and they are. Um, they have not done. Uh, they've not sent in their a their their A team, as it were. Um, so. I think it's it's very silly, and I, I I hope that people don't don't buy into that argument. I think that the the, the best thing that could ha happen now is a recognition that um, the right choice all along uh, was Ukrainian neutrality, um, and that's what that has to be the answer. It's just there's nothing. There's nothing anyone can can do. This is a a, 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 new, a, a ferocious nuclear arm nuclear nuclear armed power. Um, so there's um, the the very best thing for them would be to take the path that Austria took in the in the mid 1950s, and that is neutrality between the blocks. 
people aren't going to like it, but th- that's, that's the reality. Well, it could end up helping us to avoid a, a much bigger conflict. Yeah. 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 And the Russians have so- sh- shown and expressed um, their um, capability and willingness to, 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 to up the ante. And we need to be realistic and recognize that we we can't. It's not right. It's not morally acceptable to fight the Russians to the, to the last Ukrainian. Uh, so you know, um, the, the the best thing that we could do uh, would be to support the efforts of of really of Macron to act as a as a broker here. Uh, and end this thing before it gets really bad. It's bad. It's shocking. Um, it's wrong, but it is going to get um, a lot, a lot worse if it continues. And and it could end up embroiling other countries into this. Yeah, I, I'm afraid so because if you know any, no one really knows that much about the dynamics of escalation, and. Um, so yeah, it could absolutely embroil NATO, um, particularly with these arms shipments. So if, if the Poles are shipping arms to Ukraine and there are Polish soldiers doing so, and the Russians somehow, you know, attack, kill, or capture them, then um, that opens the door. That opens the door to um article five uh an attack on one is an attack against all and then we have a world war instead of a very unfortunate and sad regional conflict um so that's something that um, everyone needs to be working overtime to to try to prevent well james i want to thank you for coming on parallax views uh my listeners i i assume can keep up with your work uh by visiting the uh, U.S.-Russia Accord website. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I'd like to thank you for listening to this edition of the show. It was put together quite quickly. As always, if you appreciate the work I'm doing here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.